A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, out. I it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi, everyone. I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true stories of how science has affected people's lives. This week's story is from Amy Dixon. The story was recorded in September 2013 at Littlefield in Brooklyn as part of a partnership with Everyday Health. The theme of the evening was aging. So it's 1999, and I'm 24 years old. I'm moving on from my first job out of nursing school as a surgical critical care nurse. And I get a call from my nurse manager at the time, and she says a quick, curt hello, which I find odd because I like her. And then she asks me to hold on and transfers her boss, the clinical director, uh, who has the first name of a flower. I'll call her Daisy for the story. And she has 25 years of experience on me, Daisy. So I haven't had a lot of contact with Daisy in the few years that I've worked uh, in the surgical ICU, but... I figure she's calling me to say that she's sad to see me go and wishing me well on my new endeavors and maybe giving me some words of wisdom because that's what senior nurse leaders do. But that's not what happened. Daisy says to me, I'm disappointed in you, Amy. Hospice? You're going into hospice? And she says the word hospice like it's a horror film. And she goes on to imply that she can't believe I'm leaving this innovative critical care unit where people's lives are saved to work in hospice where people are giving up. And I was completely caught off guard. I mean, she's the senior nurse leader. Isn't she supposed to, you know, enlighten me? But I was completely caught off guard and speechless. I didn't know what to say. And she, when I finally came to, she didn't even give me a chance to say why I was going into hospice at 24 years old. It was because I had a hospice rotation in nursing school. And I found it to be beautiful and actually life-affirming and that people were providing care in in the comfort of patients' homes, unlike in the hospital where there were, you know, in the strict confines of the hospital with um, strict visiting hours and bad cafeteria food and labs in the middle of the night that would disrupt sleep and morning a.m. rounds by physicians and residents where they would stand at at the end of the bed and ignore the patient in front of them. And... I liked visiting hours in the surgical ICU. I mean, that's what I liked most about working there, I realized, when most nurses loathe those 20 minutes in their shift. And I didn't appreciate when one of the other senior nurses, another nurse with a name that has a flower, Rose, (laughs) um, when she would kind of announce that visiting hours were over in front of all the family members and patients, it was so rude. And if you didn't enforce the visiting hours... She kind of like took on this Bella Lugosi and Dracula thing where she like had these animated eyes and this thick makeup and this robust athletic s- stature and she'd be like, visiting hours are over. <laughs> it was really terrifying and I grew to dread visiting hours when she was working. But most of all, I went into hospice because no one wanted to, because it was the work that other people feared. And maybe that was something that I got from my father to champion the underdog. And I didn't care if Daisy or Rose 
or the anesthesiologist who thought I was making a horrible career choice, or the other nurses in my unit um, didn't understand why a 24-year-old nurse would choose to work with the dying, and if that made me the Sylvia Plath of nursing, so be it. <laughs> you know, I saw that it was something special, hospice, that it was something organic and raw. And yes, maybe it was rebellious after all, but that was great. And I learned over time that it, hospice was very clinically rooted. I needed to have a vast knowledge of disease process, from cardiac disease to uh, liver cirrhosis, kidney disease, Alzheimer's, dementia, a wide array of cancers. I needed to have a good understanding and comfort with pharmacology to treat symptoms. And I needed to have precise assessment skills in the home, because I was the eyes and ears of the medical team. I was calling the physician to consult and make suggestions on how to keep people comfortable in the home. And we were treating all kinds of symptoms on the fly, in the moment, that needed a quick reaction. Nausea and vomiting, delirium, anxiety, depression, physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain, pain pain, caregiver pain. Caregiver pain. Now, as much as hospice is really about you know, someone who's dying, it's also about the family and friends of the one who is dying and their pain, caregiver pain. And it's a little bit more elusive to treat than you know, the evidence-based practices we have to treat bone cancer, for example. You know, I knew how to document all the long-acting and short-acting pain medicine and, and come up with a suggestion, consult with the doctor, consult with the patient, and titrate pain medicine. I knew that I could take a composine suppository out of the rescue pack in the refrigerator if someone was having severe nausea, but there wasn't a little plastic bag in the refrigerator for caregivers on the Kubler-Ross stages of grief. Like, I don't even know what would be in it, like a suppository for you know, existential bliss. Like, what would I give the caregivers? It would be nice. The thing is, you know, I had all the textbook knowledge of how to comfort the family members. You know, I knew the stages of grief, and I could point them out. If Mrs. P was in denial when her husband had end-stage dementia, and he couldn't no longer get out of the bed, and she thought he was faking, I could attempt to educate her that, no, this is part of the disease process. Or if the daughter of an elderly woman named Betty, who had lung cancer and an addiction to Xanax and playing bridge, was angry that her mother was dying, and she was angry at me, she was angry at her mother, she was angry at anyone who came in that house. It wasn't really that she was angry at us, she was just angry at the loss of control for losing her mother, and the best thing that I could do, and that I was taught, was to be present and allow her to tell her story, and hopefully that would allow her anger to ease, and so forth with bargaining and depression and the other stages of grief. But there was something else happening in the families and caregivers and friends. Uh, something else that I was noticing as I was doing hospice over a couple of years, and it was a kind of a stupor that the stages of grief wasn't quite defining. And it would happen time and again, you know, caregiver after caregiver, patient after patient, you know, family members that would, that would know the patients. And it was kind of a stupor. Like, even though their faces weren't showing an emotion, there was something going on. And it usually happened, you know, right before someone's death to the time of death. And even when I would go back for my bereavement visits, I would still kind of see that caregiver stupor. I soon moved on to home care 
but I still saw that caregiver stupor whenever maybe one of my patients passed in home care and the caregivers still had that demeanor. Now it's 2010. I'm no longer a hospice nurse. I do work in home care. And the balloon pop sound of a text wakes me up. It's early Sunday morning, but not too early, about 9.30, Easter's next week. And my body feels like a combination of the worst hangover I've ever had and the hardest workout I've ever done, but it was neither. Stephen and I had been vomiting for 36 hours after we ate a dry slice of pizza with pesto sauce on a Delta flight back from London. I need more sleep. I want more sleep. And even though my muscles ached the night before, I stayed up watching The Time Traveler's Wife because I craved intimacy. Stephen and I didn't have sex in London. Red flag, something's not going right in the relationship. So I settled for the romantic film. Side note, The Time Traveler's Wife, not that romantic <laughs> at all. The balloon pop sound of a text. My mind scans all the possibilities of what this text might be about. It can't be Stephen because he's lying next to me, so it's certainly not him texting me to watch an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm when he gets home from work. And it's not my girlfriend's inviting me out to karaoke too early for that. So I figure it's either work asking me to start my shift early or it's an emergency. I roll on my side and I pull my iPhone from the stark white power cord and... I look at the screen, and it's a text from my brother, and it says, Dad collapsed in the van. Mom called 911. He's not waking up. I'm on my way to Marymount Hospital. I'll call you when I'm there. I don't get out of bed. I don't even wake up my boyfriend. I'm 456 miles away from my family. I stare at these plastic glow-in-the-dark stars that I jumped on the bed to put on my bedroom ceiling four years earlier to remind me to be playful and youthful and to honor space and the stars and the universe. And I feel this expansiveness across my chest, and it makes me take a deep breath. And I figure, okay, this is probably the fight-or-flight response I'm experiencing. That would be a scientific explanation for all of this, but I don't care. I don't care about the nursing journals or the textbook explanations for what's happening to me or the scientific reasons for any of this because I just want to feel it. Suddenly, all these memories start passing by me, you know, of my father. It's like I suddenly see that we're uh, at the Girl Scout daughter father dance and he's the best polka dancer of all the dads. And then, and then I'm and then I have this memory of when he uh, coached the middle school, the boys' middle school soccer team, and I'm there with him, and he's telling me to run laps with the boys. And if I run faster with the, from the boys, and they have to do another lap. Maybe a little sexist at the time, but still, like, you know, it was fine. And, and I remember watching him tell an AA story at Alcoholics Anonymous, and he never wrote notes, but he always talked about unconditional love. And I remember uh, he came to the college parking lot to help me fix a tire when an ex didn't want to do it. And the sun is brighter. It's brighter in my bedroom windows, and time is non-existent. And I still feel this expansiveness across my chest and this feeling of love and loss and emptiness. And my brother calls and confirms, you know, that he did pass. 
and I just had a hunch that he did anyway. And then I'm starting to have all these existential questions at the same time, you know? So I'm having these memories and this expansiveness, and then I'm asking myself all these things like, my boyfriend and I aren't really in love. We're not good for each other, and, and I have to take my cats to the vet. I'm a horrible cat mom. And, and oh, I feel so guilty that I'm, I'm away from my family now, but New York is my home. And will I ever experience true love? And why is having a child the 20th thing on my list? Like, what is wrong with me? But maybe I'm okay with that because I like my freedom. Or maybe I just haven't found the right person. I don't know. And maybe it's too late. I don't know. What is the purpose of life? You know, like, all these things are happening. It's like that scene in Kubrick's 2001 where uh, Bowman is going through the uh, tunnel of color and it's like lights flashing by. That's what I'm feeling. It's like memories flashing by and existential questions and those, those alien things in front of That's the expansiveness. And even, even in that movie, in Kubrick's 2001, that's even the caregiver stupor, you know, when Bowman's like, you know, kind of has that like frozen look and he's perplexed and in awe and something's being processed in his mind. Like that's the caregiver stupor I was seeing the whole time. And I realize I'm in it. I'm having that caregiver stupor now. This is, this is what all those family members were feeling when I was wondering what was happening, like this process of memories, and it's probably unique to each and every one of us. And it lingers. A year later, when I'm in the bodega buying fruit, I hear that John Mayer song, Fathers, Be Good to Your Daughters, and I start crying, and I'm angry because I hate John Mayer. <laughs> <laughs> I hate him, and now that song makes me cry. And then when I pass, you know, stores like The Gap, screw The Gap and their solid colors and their Kelly Green sweaters, because they make me think of my dad. (laughs) And I just think that this pattern will continue for the rest of my life. You know, loss, but then life. Loss, and then life. Life. Thank you. That was Amy Dixon. Amy is a registered nurse with over 16 years of experience in critical care, home care, hospice, and telehealth teletriage. She is currently a clinical manager in a teletriage department for a large nonprofit home care agency in New York City. Amy has also studied improv comedy and storytelling at Second City, The Pit, and the Upright Citizens Brigade, and narrative writing and nursing at the Center for Health, Media, and Public Policy at Hunter College. As a holistic board-certified nurse, Amy is currently exploring ways to integrate creativity, storytelling, narrative writing in nursing and healthcare. Her blog is at creativern.com. For more science stories, take a look at storycollider.org, where we have archives of the podcast and upcoming events. We also depend on listeners like you for our support. Thank you so much to those who do donate. And if you don't and you're able, please consider donating at storycollider.org slash donate. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, and Ari Daniel. The podcast is produced by Rose Eveleth. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Littlefield for hosting the show, to Everyday Health for being wonderful partners, and to Curtains for making the room as dark as I needed to listen to that story. Thanks for listening.